There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Friday, August 17th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I shall be going on vacation next week. I will be bringing you a different guest host every day. In fact, that's what the spiel is going to be about. I'm going to introduce you to all those guest hosts. I think you know them already. But while I'm gone, I expect the Manafort verdict to come in. And who knows what it'll be? I predict this will happen. If it is a guilty verdict, Donald Trump and his acolytes will write it off. Doesn't, doesn't mean anything. If it is a not guilty verdict, it will be absolute vindication that this has been a witch hunt all along. This is what's called the unfalsifiable paradigm, and it is a characteristic of the defense of Donald Trump. Let's go a little broader, though, because I was asking myself, how dire is the Mueller investigation? Meaning, if Mueller proves his case, whatever his case may be, against Trump, against Trump associates, it would serve maybe the political purpose of an impeachment, impeaching this horrible man from office. But the deeds that were alleged, how much do they strike at democracy or the person himself? It's very hard to imagine a president who would go in with the Russians and be gleeful about dirty opposition politics. But, you know, I can imagine a universe where a neophyte in politics who doesn't really know the rules does this. And what if that neophyte weren't Donald Trump? What if that neophyte pursued an agenda that we all got behind and had, you know, was a good person and had good instincts? In other words, what if it was like Bill Clinton? Because Bill Clinton, a close associate of his was Webb Hubble, and he appointed Webb Hubble to government jobs, and then Webb Hubble was thrown in jail during the Clinton presidency. So it's a little bit analogous to if there is a guilty verdict in Manafort. And I think that it is at least worth considering. Look, obviously, I hope Mueller gets his man. If the man is there to be got, I hope he fully proves his case as best as he can against anyone who did transgress. And also, I very much hope that we can do whatever we could do to stop the swath of destruction that Donald Trump has wrought upon the land. But the actual crimes that so far we're seeing bubbling up from the Mueller investigation, while bad, if they were somehow applied to a decent president, would we all be saying worthy of impeachment, worst thing we've ever heard, totally unconscionable. Very hard to make that mental leap because Donald Trump, and this is the acronym I use, Donald Trump is characterized by mucus, meaning he is mentally unfit, cruel, unethical, and stupid. There's so much mucus, so much that is mentally unfit. And by mentally unfit, I don't exactly mean deranged. He just doesn't seem to have the habits of mind to make correct decisions. He's obviously cruel. He he revels in cruelty. He's unethical, emoluments clause, self-dealing, and he's stupid, which is a little different from mentally unfit. One's about the amount of information he has. The other's about how he processes information. So there's all this mucus that associates with Donald Trump. But what if Donald Trump weren't characterized by mucus, the mentally unfit, cruel, unethical, and stupid stuff. What if he were doing a decent enough job as president? What if? I wrote a book about what ifs, something to consider while I'm away on vacation, not considering much besides margaritas. On the show today, I give you in my spiel a bunch of guest hosts who you're going to love. But first, 
You have heard interviews with the famous. You have heard interviews with the infamous. You have heard man and woman on the street interviews. You have heard the studs, turkle, just regular person interviews. Sometimes a reporter will take a microphone into nature and just tape bird calls. But this is a podcast that interviews that which has never been interviewed before, including a can of soda, a pillow, and a lamppost. The name of the podcast is Everything is Alive, and the host is my guest, the actual human being, Ian Shillock. I am now going to introduce to you a, a gem of a radio show. I think it's the funniest podcast that's out there. But if it's not the funniest, of the funny podcasts, it is the most efficient and most respectful of your time. It is called Everything is Alive. And in it, host Ian Chillog interviews what we used to think of as an inanimate object, but at least the gums are a-flapping because this lamppost, this pillow, they have stories to tell. And oh, does Ian get the stories out of them. Hello, Ian Chillog. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Which was the hardest nut to crack of your inanimate objects? Well, I think the lamppost mm -hmm. was, um, that was the sort of the toughest to get to uh, her her, I guess, true self. Yeah. You know? Regardless of whether or not you're scared of the dark, I'm going to be shining. But you know what? Some people really are scared of the light. Think about that. Do you, like, they... I mean, I think that... Honestly, I, d I don't know what that means, but I did hear a woman saying that when she walked by me before. Well, democracy dies in darkness. Yeah. The that's the Washington Post motto. Huh. See? The Washington Lamp Post. I think that's where it must have come from. Now, I have to say, it sounded you're uh, an NPR veteran and you've uh, worked on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and the Bryant Park Project, but that sounded like good studio sound, but you had to have obviously mic'd it in the wild. How'd you get that effect? Well, I, actually, I, the, the show, it kind of exists in a non-space. Okay. And I think... It's maybe in a studio, it's maybe in the real world, maybe the can of cola is sitting in a chair in front of a microphone, maybe it's in a fridge. Right. Uh, like if you really, because if it wasn't a real space and it was a can of cola, there might be hissing, there might be pops into the microphone. It, it, miking a can of cola is probably harder than I would yeah. think. Yeah. Well, I, it's actually, we've been thinking about an episode with uh, a grain of sand uh -huh. and thinking about getting a microphone close enough to a grain of sand, which I can't imagine is la very loud. Yeah. I think that's going to be just a technical challenge. Now, okay, so you would interview a grain of sand. That's the most elemental of the, of the ones I've heard because when you say a can of soda, it's not really one thing. It's, it's uh, a little aluminum alloy and the, and the pop uh, top and the paint and a lamppost is complex and a pillow at least has the cover and the pillow says that, you know, his, I guess, his intestines, his, his, uh, his innards are the down, but he thinks of the cover as just as we would think of clothing. That's not part of him as a pillow. That's, that's what I got from the pillow interview. Right. Well, actually, sort of as we were getting settled for that interview, he yeah. told me that he thinks of his outer shell Mm -hmm. The cloth that contains the down yeah. as his case. Yeah. And that in the pillow world, they refer to the pillow case 
as the second case. Now, you are down. Yeah, I'm down. Goose down. Can, can I ask, I, I wonder, do you, do you think about the geese that you're made from? I'm grateful to them. I'm grateful to the geese or goose. I don't know. I hope that their feathers are taken and they're still left alive. But I know, like now that I'm saying it out loud, that's definitely not what happens. They're definitely killed and their feathers are They're not sheep. You don't shear a goose. How long do you tape for what you uh, actually air? What's the ratio? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's generally we sit down for about 75, 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the limit of uh, human endurance. <laughs> yeah. But a uh, pillow can go forever. Yeah. Yeah. They don't really lose their fluff. Um, yeah. And a lamppost, I mean, you have the clear parameters of dusk to dawn, and outside of that, they're yeah. pretty— Or are they free? I mean, are they, are they not on? Did you tell the lamppost, you know, you don't have to be on? Yeah. The lamppost is kind of, in a way, always on. Mm-hmm. I th- and I think when the lamppost is not on, it can be more on yeah. because it doesn't— have to be distracted by its duties of being literally on. Mm-hmm. Maeve, the lamppost, has an Irish, it seems like an Irish accent. Uh, yes. Can you explain that? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, we're a city of immigrants. Yeah. Um, it's entirely possible that, you know, her, she was brought over. I, I didn't oh, ask. Right, right, right. So Just as I wouldn't. wiring yeah. or her ore came from County Kilkenny or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, I don't know, if I had an Irish accent, Mm -hmm. you as an interviewer probably wouldn't ask me why I had an Irish accent. I would, but I shouldn't (laughs) is the point. (laughs) Well, you would just make certain assumptions. I I guess I'm like, I'm fine with those assumptions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But if at the same time you were casting a glow throughout the studio that, you know, was triggered by a time or a dusk, maybe I'd ask about that too. Yeah, yeah. You've you've interviewed so many experts on things. You just wanted to cut out that goddamn middleman, yeah. That academic who either was was a dud in the interview or was like so stoked to be on NPR that he was way too much. Yeah, just like forget that. And then you had to set up the ISDN at UC Berkeley and just cut that out (laughs) and talk to the blanket. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think anybody who works in uh, public radio long enough will eventually get expert fatigue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, and that is. You know, we all trend to. They say that all rock stars want to be uh, athletes. I mean, I, I would suppose every producer eventually just wants to interview a blanket. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. how it works. That's, that's a natural so, progression. Feels like a good rule. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you work with again. We're, we're peeling back the curtain a little bit, and uh, maybe we'll give a little spoiler to say that we're going to get into actually how it's done. Some of these objects are portrayed by people of the same name who yes. have are, are at least funny and maybe have some improv background yeah do you know most of these people did you know them beforehand no we're we're there will be people that i know on the show but so far it's mostly been people we've kind of cast how do you cast them look around at you know improv Mm -hmm. um we're looking definitely for people who can be very human very deadpan it's important that it's important that there are no funny voices in the show Mm -hmm. um it's important that it feels pretty flat. Like I think you get one you get one leap and the leap for us is that inanimate objects can talk. How much do we need to for for us to like it? Do we need to understand it through the lens of a human? In other words, I think as a human 
we would understand a lamppost as having a job, being vigilant, wanting to do that job, and maybe never wanting the power to go out. But as a can of soda, the question of being consumed, there was that Seth Rogen movie where they all played pieces of food and they uh, constructed some elaborate, they were, under, uh, uh, they were under a delusion that being eaten was good. They didn't want to be eaten, but they were being lied to. So yeah, that's the can of soda question. As a human, we would think, I guess, of being drunk and as being killed and having our, our liquids drained of us. So do you have to get into how they would think of it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like there, there usually is a metaphor, you know, that we're, right. you know, that we just kind of come across. Um, and that little uh, expression you conveyed to me, I think meant, I don't want to be too grandiose about it, <laughs> but there's a metaphor. <laughs> well, but, no, I, I also want, like, I, I'm not, th- I don't go in thinking this is what I want, the thing yes. to communicate. Yeah. It just, it just happens because yeah. it, you know, it is a human playing a thing. So yeah, it's going right, to, right. yeah. That's uh, I know you've been under a lot of assault by not casting qualified <laughs> soda cans as soda cans. I can't believe these roles are going yeah, to humans. They're just so hard to find. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what they say. But is it that you're not looking in the right places? But I do, I do think, you know, it's fun when like the subway seat, which is an interview that's coming up. I would have thought of that as a horrible job. Mm-hmm. He loves it. Sure. Yeah. 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 He really feels a connection to people, and he feels a little bit, uh, I guess, depressed when there's not a butt on him. Now, during every show, there is a call-out, because you are a producer, and I suppose this is a, can be seen as a nonfiction medium. There is a call-out to an actual expert— not uh, an expert. Or an actual person yes. who has some interaction. Yeah. The whole point <laughs> is to get away from experts. And uh, I have to say that I didn't know if they were real or not, but I said to myself, so I'll give one away. During the lamppost interview, uh, you told a story about how a fam- famous lamppost from Singing in the Rain was stolen. And you called the guy who had the lamppost that was stolen. I was like, is this true? And then I decided it must be true based on one thing, that the guy you were interviewing seemed too imperfect. <laughs> like if, if this were something that it was a construction, you know, you've made a lot of incorrect answers and quizzes and or uh, bluff the listener game on wait, wait, don't tell me. The ones with the perfect, awesome details, those are never true yeah. because a, a writer constructed them. Hi, is this Brian Getzinger? Yes. And you are the Brian Getzinger who was uh, once in possession of the lamppost from Singing in the Rain? I am. And have you seen it since? No, I have not. In fact, I have not heard, heard, of, heard about it in 28 years. That was the last time. So why do you want to put those, why do you want to put those pieces of nonfiction into your world? For me, it's fun yeah. that you don't know if it, if the show is fiction or nonfiction and that it moves in between. And, like, I will also talk to the things about my personal life, and that's all real. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. And, you know, that's also part of, you know, you want to treat the thing as much like a person as you can. Yeah. And if, But it's also like WTF. Over time, we get to know Mark <laughs> Maron because he exposes his soul to Kesha and President Obama. Yeah. Same with you and a can of soda. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if we will ever get there. I remember but, when Ian said that to the can of soda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I And I like that – I think it's fun that people aren't sure. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the things that – a lot of the facts that the things tell us are true 
Uh, like the thing about the pillow and one third of pillows becomes all this other gross stuff. Like that's a true fact. I think it's fun that you're not sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. When you call these people, do you tell them this is in service of interviewing a pillow? If they ask. I mean, I tell them it's a show about, well, so the guy in the Maeve lamppost episode uh, was so hard to find. Oh, wow. Uh, it took a long time. Because there was like a reference to him in an L.A. Times article from 1990. And then nothing. Yeah. Uh, I eventually found a uh, uh, a real estate listing with his address wow. and sent a FedEx to that address See, with my phone number. this is why if you're a young producer and you're like, oh, I'll just make bullshit on the radio to make people laugh. No, it's not good enough. You need 10 <laughs> years in hard news to make the humor really sing. Yeah. Ian Chillog is the interviewer, the host, the inventor of Everything is Alive. He has a long history of looking at the world a lot differently than you do. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel, sort of. It's really a promo because I got to take a vacation, guys, but it's not going to be a vacation to you. You have a, a heavy assignment, and what I've decided to do, or what I've been able to do, is tap five disparate, interesting guest hosts who are either fans of the gist or sort of mixed up with the gist's DNA to do their versions of the gist, interview, spiel, little uh, little segment at the top. You know how the gist goes. You've listened. So I'm going to bring you my chats with all my guest hosts right now, and you can decide which shows to listen to. I think all, all would be a good one. So on Monday, the gist will be hosted by MSNBC's Steve Kornacki. He's going to get into the nitty-gritty of congressional races 78 days before the midterms. I want to do politics, believe it or not. Yeah. So midterms coming up. I want to do a preview of it, and I want to be able to get into some of the, the stuff I can't get into on a two-minute cable segment. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I want to be able to talk some specific districts in yeah. a way that captures a bigger story about sort of the nation. Do you promise not to use the word bellwether? God, I'm going to try my best. <laughs> put, a, put one of those tip jars here. Do and you I'll, believe uh, in those things? The bellwether district? <sighs> there are some districts that are do you know, close. <laughs> they, they asked me to do like a list uh, for the network of um, you know the, the 10 must-have seats for Democrats. Yeah. And I started to go through it, and I started to come up with the list. And then I realized, I'm like, I, I, so, okay, here's the 10 they must have. Right. But you know what? They could get like eight of them. Yeah. But then get two more over here, and they're fine. Yeah. There's no so I don't know thing. how you define, you know, you, it's must have until you don't need it. And, right. and you really won't know until election night. You can, you can do ranges of probability. But. It's like uh, the need, you need a center to win in the NBA, then Michael Jordan comes along. It's like, oh, I guess you don't. No, you don't need <laughs> yeah. it after all. It turns out, right? Yeah. Yeah. You need to establish the run. Oh, let's pass 50 times a game. And, and funny, there's just, there are a couple districts just sitting out there that, that don't get a lot of attention and you don't know how to categorize them except like there's the, my favorite is the southern end of Virginia one third of the state um, and Trump got 72% of the vote there in 2016 I wouldn't be surprised if the Democrat wins the seat wow it's an open seat this is that guy Richard Ojeda he's um, he just fits the culture of the district so so well he was a yeah, I think was this Heath Shuler's old seat no this, but it's, it, this is coal country uh-huh. this yeah, is yeah. rural southern West Virginia right. I think this guy I think he was a a Sanders supporter in the primary in 16 I think he says he ended up voting for Trump 
in 2016 and then being, you know, regretting it and, and now running. And it just, there, there was one poll that came out there about a month ago, showed it dead even. I mean, Trump won it by 50. Yeah. And it's dead even. Now, you're not going to see that in a lot of Trump plus 50 districts, but there are places like that on might, the map. There might be a district that's very sensitive to the tariffs. That it's a little pro-Trump, but they have big, uh, you know, metal manufacturing. And you start letting the story of election night 2016, you know, when, when Trump ended up winning, it was the, industri- the industrial Midwest. Yeah. And, and you start wondering exactly how will that play there this time? Well, this is called uh, Forward Promo, and now we're interested to see where Kornacki is going to take it on Monday. Steve Kornacki of MSNBC and of The Gist on Monday. Thank you, Steve. All right. After Steve hosts on Monday, we're going slightly opposite route, north of the border, where Max Kerman, who is the frontman for the group Arkells, will actually be talking politics and Donald Trump also. The plan is to be interviewing another Canadian. He is a Toronto Star reporter, Daniel Dale. I know yes. he's had a little bit of time on your show, well, on Trumpcast, um, and he, you've also referenced him in the open of the gist. And uh, yeah, I want to know what it's like to, to be a Canadian covering Trump down in Washington, D.C. And oh. uh, I know he, he's the, the Trump uh, lie fact checker man, so we can get into that. Do you, do you know him? I mean, do you have any sort of, uh, have you had any interaction with him before this uh, upcoming interview? I don't know him personally. I know some people that work at the Star, uh, Bruce Arthur, who's a great sports columnist. Yeah, yeah, that guy's uh, awesome. He's a pal. And actually, uh, Mike... Uh, DeAngelis, the guitar player in our band, he's married to a Globe and Mail reporter, Molly Hayes. So we know some people in that world. This is my conception of how Canada works, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone kind of knows everyone. (laughs) So uh, what about a spiel? You got any uh, idea for a spiel? Yeah, so my spiel idea, and I'm kind of working on it right now, and you can tell me if it's a bad idea. I really love this article in The Atlantic how to discuss the far right without empowering it. Ooh, yeah, did you see that one? That's interesting. So ba- no, I love that idea. Yeah. So basically, uh, this reporter for a major national German um, broadcaster uh, had an interview with uh, the leader of the far right alternative party, but refused to ask about any immigration questions. Mm-hmm. And so they talked about every other kind of issue, climate change, retirement, digitalization, but did not discuss refugees at all. And it, and it proved that the guy didn't really have anything articulate to say on the matter. The only thing he really wanted to talk about was refugees and immigration. And by not acknowledging that, I thought it was tactically a really interesting way about going about talking to the alt-right without really giving it a platform for what it wants to talk about. Right. Like not acknowledging the bully is something that I'm really interested in. Of course, one day... Some publication or outlet's going to interview, you know, some Taliban commando who has this, like, really well-thought-out recycling scheme. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're like, well, he he might be uh, wrong on the terrorism part, but the recycling scheme. So so in order to show the paucity of how serious he is, I asked about desalinization. And let me tell you, (laughs) he knocked it out of the park. <laughs> All right. Max Kerman is the frontman of Arkells and will be the frontman of The Gist next week. Guest hosting for me. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Mike. And now let us veer from that foray into the fringes of the political discourse to more a more mainstream direction. Alex Rorty of McClatchy. He kind of is the McClatchy Papers correspondent on the Democrats writ large. So what he's going to do and what I asked uh, all my guest hosts to do, and on Thursday, he'll be talking to a GOP operative who can honestly use the hashtag Never Trump. Well, I want to talk to a veteran Republican operative. He's one of the few Never Trumpers left. 
and get his critique of the media because I don't think it's one you hear a lot about. He's, he's not saying that the media is unfair to Trump. Actually, it's quite the opposite. He's saying that there is a double standard because Trump just throws so much at reporters when he talks or what he does with his official business from the White House that we actually don't give enough attention to some of the things that would be huge scandals or at least controversies in other administrations. It's, uh, I think, a very provocative argument and one that I think uh, is going to be fun to dive into. So does this guy, it's Tim Miller, right? Tim Miller. Yeah, I know that guy. So his basic point is, and he's a never-Trumper, is that it's not exactly that the media is going too easy on Trump. It's that Trump is outmaneuvering the media. Is that what he's saying? I think that's partially it. I think in some ways he does think the media uh, is going too easy on Trump. His point would be every single time that Trump lies, we need to call them on it. Uh Uh, And that right now the media just isn't doing that. But that there is just a problem that if these things are just happening at such a rapid pace, and that's been such a defining story of the Trump administration, right, that so much comes at you so quickly that it is hard for reporters and maybe there's just something human about getting used to it. Um, and that the, he would argue the professional responsibility for journalists is not to get used to it. It's to keep pointing it out time and time and time again to the public. Alex Rorty, you'll be hearing him on Thursday on The Gist hosting this show. All right. And Evan McMorris Santoro of Vice will be here. He'll be talking to a group of fellows that have captured the imagination of some podcast listeners. Do you know El Chapo Trap House? Evan's going to make sure that you will get to know them. These are the kind of people that are often referred to as the, quote, dirtbag left. Um, They are irreverent, uh, angry, and uh, very liberal. Yeah, I would say they're left-leaning in the sense that, I don't know, the Habsburg are kind of a dynasty, (laughs) possibly dynastic. (laughs) Yes, that's, yes, that's correct. And the thing is, they've caused a lot of commotion mostly inside uh, the Democratic Party and the sort of political center left. They spend most of their time attacking the far right, but the people who get most pissed off at them are people who are are in the center left. So it's an interesting time to talk to them because we're so close to this election where it looks like a lot of Democratic candidates are espousing a lot of values that people who are closer to the Chapo end of the spectrum would like. But people who are running those campaigns and who donate to those campaigns and care about those candidates mostly hate Chapo. So it's a very interesting time to talk about how those two things interact. Do you think if you cleaned them up and prettified them and, uh, you know, had them express their thoughts in their Sunday finest, just on substance, are they what we're calling now democratic socialists? Are they, is there much room between them and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? I mean, they love her, and they've spoken very highly of her, but they really talk more about systemic stuff. I mean, this is the interesting thing about this interview, and why I'm looking forward to doing it, is that it's very hard to sort of figure out exactly where to put these guys, because they do have a lot of candidates that, that they support. They have calls to action for basically every left primary candidate that's running out there. You know, Cynthia Nixon they like, Ocasio-Cortez they like, um, anybody running, you know, primarying a Democrat from the left they tend to like. But when it comes to their actual view of politics, someone like Ocasio-Cortez talks about the reality of democratic socialism being relatively at hand, that it's not very difficult to see the system shift in a democratic socialist way in a very short period of time. 
And a lot of times the folks at Chapo who are a bit more circumspect about this kind of thing, they say, no, actually, we are way too far down a whole different road to even get anywhere near achieving those goals. And that, 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 that there's a lot more to do. There's a lot more systemic problems to get to before then. Listening to their show sounds like a bunch of kind of a bunch of people having a pretty good time just sort of jerking around with the establishment. But for some reason, the establishment is very, very nervous about them. Evan McMorris, Santoro. <laughs> he covers politics for Vice News on HBO and will be gisting it up next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And on Friday, after all those gentlemen, and I do mean gentlemen, we just need more of the feminine spirit, don't you think? So This American Life, Stephanie Fu will be in the host chair, and she'll be talking about the new film, Crazy Rich Asians, and uh, how it's kind of saddled with expectations. I saw Crazy Rich Asians, and I caught a lot of feelings. And so I'm going to be talking with uh, B.A. Parker about the difference between watching Crazy Rich Asians and Asian as an Asian and watching Black Panther as a black person. Yeah. And with Kat Chow about the burden of whether it a movie catering to minority audiences has to be good. Well, burden. I would say there's a burden for every movie to be good. Like, don't suck, you know? It's a little more intense when it comes to when you only get one movie every 25 years. Well, yeah, I understand that, you know, if Ghostbusters reboot wasn't good, some people would say, well, let's never let women reboot a men's (laughs) movie. Yeah. I think for a lot of Asians, they are still hoping that every Asian American population will be represented. They still are, like, holding it to that same standard because they only get one film. Stephanie Fu. She's Bye. the uh, she's a future host of the gist. <laughs> All right. So those are our five. Kornacki, Kerman, McMorris Santoro, Rorty, and Fu. And every one of these guest hosts will be doing a spiel. None of them has has it written. They've all asked me advice on how to do it. I've, you know, giving them some pointers, but uh the thing about doing it is just to do it. But I also give the advice, you know the thing that you always do in your day job and they don't let you talk about X? Talk about X in the spiel. So we'll see it. I'll listen. I'll be on vacation. I'll be on a beach. But, you know, podcasts are everywhere. That's all next week. And I want to pre-thank my guest hosts and pre-thank you for checking them out. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname produced The Gist. They're looking to land a big interview with a bag of grass clippings. Big get bag of grass clippings. Smells great from the outside. I wonder how we smell from the inside. Steve Licktie, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is thinking of commissioning a talk show where at the host desk is just literally the host's desk. And he will be interviewing the couches, futons, and chairs of different stars who come through. Now, Steve comes from public radio, where they have a long, proud history of allowing pieces of furniture to host shows. That was, that was then. This is now. And this will be a big, bold, new direction. The gist. While on vacation, I will be interviewing my rental car. Predicted line of inquiry. Why do you hide the latch for your gas tank? Is this like a joke in the rental car community? Is putting the latch in weird different places your form of expression? And then I'll be interviewing my kid's pool toy. Okay, so you're a dragon head, but your body is what? Like an inflatable circle? Or am I entering your torso? Or do you not even sense me? Or do I complete you? And when you're deflated, is that like hibernation? Because when a bear hibernates, they have to fatten up, but you deflate. So many questions. All the answers when I return last week in August. 
Umpru Depru Dupru, and thanks for listening.